Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening and a happy cold Tuesday. We're back. The Murder Bucket Podcast is back. Last week, we were not here, and we will explain that in just one moment. As you have already seen in tonight's title, my husband, Zachary. Hi, Zachary. Hi, I'm back. He's back, and we're talking part two of the Japanese-based cult, Om Shinrikyo. Yeah, we're dorks like that. Okay, so before we get into tonight's episode where we're going to be talking a little bit of background of each of the cult members that were involved in the subway sarin attack, as well as some criticism that came from the emergency services and several scholars that came to the cult's defense, let's go ahead and do our week-slash-weekend recap. So like I said... A little bit ago, we weren't here last week. Here's the reason. Friday, I went to work. Everything was good. Everything was peachy, wonderful, great. Until Friday afternoon, I started to feel really bad. And I thought it was just because sometimes when I take my vitamins during the day and I don't eat enough, I get really sick from them. And I thought maybe that was my problem. So I came home. I took a nap. was probably asleep for a little while. And then I decided, you know, I'm still feeling kind of bad. Let me just go and isolate myself in our spare bedroom away from everybody just to be on the safe side. Saturday, I woke up and I felt absolutely awful. Well, one of my friends at work, her husband graciously gave me one of their at-home COVID tests, and I took it, and normally you have to wait 15 minutes for the results to show up. Well, mine showed up in about two seconds. I was positive for COVID. Go me, a two-timer, because of course, I also got it in 2020, but that's besides the point. I decided that because the at-home test doesn't contact our county's health department that I should probably go get a, I guess, an actual test from a clinic. Yeah. So we piled me, Hannah, and the baby all in the car and we went to... First call? I don't know. It was... To a local urgent care. It's an urgent care that has its own little like COVID drive-through thing where they specifically just do COVID tests there. It's pretty efficient. It was. We were only there for, what, an hour and a half, maybe? Tops. Yeah. So I got a test. My husband got a test. And the baby got a test. Rapid and... What is it? PCR? Yes, rapid and PCR. A three to five day test, whatever. So I hung out in the living room. And then Zachary got a text message on his phone, not specific to a patient's name, saying that their test was negative. So we assumed it was for Zach. And it was. And it was. Then I got a text saying that a test was negative. Again, not specific to a patient's name. So was it for me? I don't know. Was it for our daughter? I don't know. 
And then probably like 10 minutes later, I got an email specific to our daughter saying that her test was negative. I also got, well, I got an email around the same time. Yeah. So I decided because we weren't sure whose negative test that text message belonged to, I came back into the spare bedroom and called the clinic 15 times probably until I finally got somebody on the phone to tell me whose negative COVID test this was in my text messages. It wasn't mine. I was positive. So all day Saturday, all day Sunday, I stayed in the spare bedroom away from everybody, which was really sad because I really love my husband and I really love my tiny child. And I took care of the baby. Yeah, he learned firsthand what it's like being a single parent. It stinks. Yeah, I I give props to all the single parents out there. I really do. But when you don't have to be a single parent, it's not fun. When you have to be, it's not that much fun either. No, it's not. So anyways, Zach had to go to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I still had to watch our daughter, so I got to wear a mask the whole time. And then as soon as he came home, he took a shower And I came right back into the spare bedroom and hung out here until Wednesday night when my symptoms were probably 95% gone, except for maybe just a runny nose in the morning, and then it would be gone, and then it would come back the next morning, and then it would be gone. That was pretty much our entire week. I had COVID, Zach didn't, the baby didn't, and now we're fine, and we're here with you, and me, and Zach. And let's get this party started. And here we go with Om Shinrikyo Part 2. We're going to start with the main perpetrators in the Siren attack. So first up is Ayuko Hayashi. He was a senior medical doctor at the Ministry of Science and Technology. When he was at Kiyo Hospital in Minato, he specialized in the heart and arteries Then he left that position to become head of circulatory medicine at the National Sanatorium Hospital in Toikai. In 1990, he left his job and family to join the cult. He became one of Shoko's favorites and was appointed the group's minister of healing. During this time, he administered several treatments to members that resulted in many deaths. Those so-called treatments included sodium pentothal and electric shock. After the subway attack, he reported to to Japanese police investigators. Because of his cooperation with the authorities that resulted in many arrests and convictions, he was given a life sentence instead of the death penalty. His getaway driver, Tomatsu Nimi, was sentenced to death and executed at the Osaka Detention House on July 26, 2018. Kenichi Hiroshi held a postgraduate degree in physics and was 30 years old at the time of the attacks. Because of his schooling, he became a member of the Chemical Brigade in the Ministry of Science and Technology. He was also involved in the Automatic Light Weapon Development Scheme. When he released his portion of the sarin, he accidentally poisoned himself. He was able to inject himself with an antidote while in the getaway car and was rushed to an OM-affiliated hospital. Because this hospital did not know about the attacks, they were clueless as to what treatment he needed. 
His getaway driver instead drove him to Alms headquarters in Shibuya, where he was given treatments. He was sentenced to death for his involvement in the attacks. His attempt to appeal this conviction was rejected on July 28, 2003, by the Tokyo High Court as well as the Supreme Court of Japan on November 6, 2009. He was executed at the Osaka Detention House on July 26, 2018. His getaway driver was sentenced to life imprisonment. Toru Toyota graduated with honors in applied physics at the University of Tokyo's science department. Directly before joining the cult, he was about to begin his doctoral studies. He also joined the chemical brigade at the Ministry of Science and Technology. He was sentenced to death, and an attempt to appeal this conviction was rejected on July 28, 2003, by the Tokyo High Court, as well as the Supreme Court of Japan, on November 6, 2009. He was executed at the Osaka Detention House on July 26, 2018. His getaway driver was sentenced to life in prison, and his appeal was rejected by the Tokyo High Court in September 2016. Masato Yokoyama had a degree in applied physics from Tokai University. He worked for an electronics firm in Gunma Prefecture for three years. He then left that job to join the cult. He became the undersecretary in the Ministry of Science and Technology. He was also involved in the automatic light weapons manufacturing scheme. He was sentenced to death in 99. He attempted to appeal, but that was rejected. He was executed at the Nyoga Detention House on July 26, 2018. His getaway driver was a member of the Ministry of Construction. He was sentenced to life in prison. Yasuo Hayashi had a degree in artificial intelligence from the Kogakuin University. After graduating, he traveled to India to study yoga. In 1988, he took vows and became a member of the cult. He rose to the number three position in the Ministry of Science and Technology. Shoko believed he was a spy and the extra packet of sarin he had on him was part of a ritual character test to prove his allegiance. After the subway attacks, he went on the run. 21 months after the attacks, he was arrested on Ishigaki Island, 1,000 miles from Tokyo. He was sentenced to death, and of course he appealed. That was rejected by the Tokyo High Court in 2008. He was executed at the Sendai Detention House on July 26, 2018. His getaway driver was sentenced to life in prison. And now we're going to move on to how the emergency services reacted. So at the time of the attacks, sarin poisoning was not well understood. Several hospitals only received information regarding how to diagnose and treat it because a professor at Shinshu University's School of Medicine saw the reports on the news. Dr. Nobu Yangagasawa had experience treating sarin poisoning after the 1994 attack involving the converted refrigerator truck that killed 8 people and injured over 200. He spotted the symptoms and was able to send information regarding diagnosis and treatment. Fire, ambulance, police, and subway officials were criticized for the way they handled the attack and the injured. Each service failed to stop several trains despite the number of passengers that were injured. 
Health services were also criticized for one hospital refusing to take any victims for almost an hour after the attack started, and several hospitals turned away victims completely. During the attack on the Hibia line, the train departed to another station despite the alarming announcements made and the influx of emergency response personnel. It wasn't until 10 minutes had passed that subway officials directed passengers to leave the station and halt service to the train. On the Chiyoda line, station employees responded to passengers pointing out the unknown liquid on the train by mopping up the mess with newspapers and bare hands and then sending the train on its way. Two of those employees later died from their direct exposure to the sarin. After the full impact of the situation was realized, station employees posted handmade signs outside the station announcing that they were closed owing to a terrorist attack. Subway officials were not trained to identify or respond to chemical or biological weapons, and there wasn't a centralized system to monitor disturbances at various stations. This made many employees think that they had isolated the sick passengers and the spills. Police and emergency medical techs were better equipped to respond to a crisis. Unfortunately, they did not respond in a timely manner during this attack. All levels of government didn't believe that there was a major problem. The trains continued to run for an hour and a half after the police started to receive calls. The substance used during the attack wasn't properly identified by police and military personnel until two hours after the attacks began. They also didn't share this information with the other services for another hour, and many hospitals never received it. Along with these issues, there was a severe shortage of antidote in Tokyo. Rural hospitals that carried the antidote for herbicide insecticide poisoning were delivered to nearby Shanashin stations, collected by a Ministry of Health official. They then boarded a train bound for Tokyo. A company located in Osaka that manufactured 2PAM, which is used to treat organophosphate poisoning, sent emergency supplies to Tokyo unsolicited when they heard the news of the attacks. In the weeks following the attacks, police raided headquarters in Kimikushiki on the foot of Mount Fuji. They found explosives, chemical weapons, and a military helicopter. There were also laboratories that could manufacture drugs such as LSD, meth, and truth serum. They found a safe that contained millions of dollars in cash and gold. Further in, they found prison cells that still had people in them. Of course, the cult issued a statement during the raid that the chemicals found were being used to make fertilizer. Over the course of six weeks, 150 cult members were arrested for a variety of offenses. The media stayed outside headquarters in Oyama for several months after the attack, waiting for any type of action and to get pictures of cult members. And now here comes the fun part. Defense offered by Japanese and American scholars. Before the subway attack, the cult had formed several friendships with Japanese scholars of religion. After the subway attack, many of them suggested that the cult was innocent. One of those was Shimada Hiromi, a professor at Tokyo's Japanese Women's University. He later apologized for this, stating that he had been deceived by the cult and that his statement damaged his public image of scholars in religion. 
he had to resign from his academic position. The cult was then contacted by an American group known as the Association of World Academics for Religious Education in May of 1995. The American scholar who founded this organization, James Lewis, told the cult that the human rights of its members were being violated. He hired human rights lawyer Barry Fisher, scholar of religion Jay Gordon, and chemical expert Thomas Bannigan. They were flown to Japan, and all of their travel expenses were paid by the cult. They made an announcement that they were investigating and would report through press conferences at the end of their trip. During a press conference, Barry and James stated that the cult didn't produce the sarin that was used in the attacks. They determined this based on photos and documents that were provided by the cult. Unfortunately, the Japanese police had made a discovery at the cult's main compound in March that they had a sophisticated chemical weapons lab that was capable of producing thousands of kilos of poison a year. British scholar of Japanese religions, Ian Reeder, stated that Jay Gordon had concluded that the cult was involved in the attack and various other crimes. James maintained his opinion that the cult was framed. Now, let's quickly get into the downfall of Shoko Ashihara. On May 16, 1995, Shoko was captured after being found hiding in a wall within a building known as the Sixth Station. He was charged with 23 counts of murder and 16 other offenses. His trial was dubbed the trial of the century and took more than seven years to conclude. During this time, the prosecution argued that he gave the orders to attack the Tokyo subway in order to overthrow the government and become the emperor of Japan. They also accused him of being the mastermind behind the Shakamoto family murder and the incident that killed eight people and injured over 200. So you're telling me that the man who was going to start Armageddon, and was apparently this so-called great leader, was hiding in a wall so he wouldn't get captured. Well, yeah, you know, sometimes your plans just don't always work out exactly how you think they should. And people still believed in him. He was still the second coming of Jesus, according to him. Okay. On February 27, 2004, Shoko was found guilty on 13 charges, including the Sakamoto family murder, and he was sentenced to death. His defense team attempted to appeal the sentencing on the grounds that he was mentally unstable. Well, yeah, I'd agree with that. He was mentally unstable. <laughs> Several psych evaluations were done. On March 27, 2006, the Tokyo High Court denied their appeal. This decision was upheld by the Supreme Court of Japan on September 15, 2006. Shoko's defense team requested two retrials, and those were both denied. He was scheduled for execution in June of 2012, but this was postponed due to several cult members being captured and arrested. It wasn't until July 6, 2018, 23 years after the subway attacks, at the Tokyo Detention House, that Shoko Ashihara, as well as six other cult members, were executed. Ridiculous. Shouldn't have taken that long. According to police officials, Shoko requested that his ashes go to his fourth daughter and be disposed of at sea. His wife, 
third daughter, and several other family members have since contested this request as they want to enshrine his ashes where cult believers can go to honor him. As of March of 2020, his ashes are still at the Tokyo Detention House. I hope they stay there. I don't think his wife should be able to enshrine his ashes to allow anybody to come visit him. No, not at all. Just throw them in the trash. And now we're going to talk about how the cult continued to operate after Shoko's imprisonment. Amshin Rikyo had its official status as a religious legal entity taken away. They filed for bankruptcy in early 96. Two of Shoko's preteen sons took over the cult as the official gurus. They removed religious texts that were related to the controversial Vajrayana Buddhist doctrines and the Bible. They made a public apology to the victims and family members of these subway attacks. They also set up a special compensation fund. In 1999, Fumahori Joyu became the official head of the organization. After the sons took over, they regrouped and named the cult Aleph. The cult was then placed under surveillance for three years in 2000 under an anti-Alm law. This required the cult to submit a list of its members and details of all assets to the authorities. Japan's Public Security Intelligence Agency was authorized to extend this surveillance for another three years because evidence was found that the group still revered Shoko. They were considered a threat to society. In a report by the National Police Agency, Olive had roughly 1,650 members in 2005. The cult operated 26 facilities in 17 prefectures and had 120 residential facilities. On September 15, 2006, the day after Shoko's death penalty appeal was denied, police raided the offices of the cult to prevent any illegal activities by cult members in response to the confirmation of Shoko's death sentence. Fumihiro announced a long-expected split from the cult on March 8, 2007, he formed a new group called the Circle of Light that is committed to uniting science and religion as well as creating the new science of the human mind. He wants to move his group away from any criminal history and more towards spiritual roots. In April 2011, the Public Security Intelligence Agency reported that Aleph still had over 1,500 members and they were actively trying to recruit new members via social media and on college campuses in Japan. The PSIA reportedly took photos inside Aleph's facility. In several of the photos, there were bundles of papers that had a knife pierced through them on an altar-like object. Some of the papers were photographs of PSIA employees, directors, police officers, and lawyer Taro Takamoto, who helped many followers leave the cult. Portraits of Shoko were still displayed throughout the facility and used videos of him to demand their followers' dependence. In 2016, the Investigative Committee of Russia stated that they opened an investigation against Alm followers and that they were conducting raids in Moscow and St. Petersburg to find them and confiscate literature, religious items, and electronic information. Alm Shinrikyo was banned by the Russian government in late 2016 
declaring it a terrorist organization. The latest incident that occurred involving this cult was in 2019 when an alms sympathizer told authorities that he intentionally rammed into pedestrians that were crowded into narrow Takashita Street. This was in retaliation for an execution. This attack left nine people injured. Now we're going to get into the fun stuff, and this is what we could find about Aum Shinrikyo in pop culture. Novelist Hiroku Murakami wrote a book entitled Underground, the Tokyo Gas Attack and the Japanese Psyche. He criticized the Japanese media for focusing on the profiles of the attackers and ignoring the lives of the victims. His book had extensive interviews with survivors. He later added a second part titled The Place That Was Promised, which focused specifically on Aum Shinrikyo. And now I'm going to talk about the more interesting ways that Aum tried to uh, recruit, especially at the height of their powers. We got this synopsis of their show that they put out from myanimelist.net. Yes, you heard that correctly. Zachary said that they made a show. So the cult created its own studio called Matt, Manga, Animation, and Team, in 1991 for the sole purpose of recruiting otaku into their cult. Okay, real quick. So otaku is a subculture in Japan, and these are people that are so into anime and manga that it has become a major part of their actual identity. This 10-episode OVA mainly focuses around Ashihara himself being Christ. All 10 episodes were sold separately during its initial release, but a compilation is available on the cult's official YouTube channel. At one point, we weren't able to completely find that, but here's a short audio clip from the first episode. Uh, the subtitles for that are on YouTube. Here's another short clip of a really weird, like, viral dance video that the cult produced at one point. Um, my favorite part about this clip that you're about to hear is the singer is Shoko Asahara himself. And that's enough of that for right now. If you want to hear the whole song, which runs almost for five minutes... You can check out that link as well as the link to the first episode of the anime in the show notes. And that's a wrap on the Japanese-based cult, Aum Shinrikyo. I hope you have enjoyed learning about the strange things this cult made their followers do, as well as the horrific Tokyo subway sarin attacks. And thank you again, Zachary, for joining me on these last two episodes how fun was that? 
It was really interesting. It was a lot of fun. And when we can find something else that we're both this interested in, I'll come back. And before you go, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at Cage's Kiss Podcast. Greetings and salutations. This is Cage's Kiss, the ultimate cage cast, where we discuss the movies and life of the national treasure, Nick Cage. There are three of us here, and I can't help but notice that none of us are Nicolas Cage. Did nobody call him? What? A cage cast with no Nick Cage? No, instead of being Nicolas Cage, we're three Nicolas Cage experts, which is the next best thing. I don't think we should admit to being experts. Too late. We are not experts at anything. We are not life coaches, and we are not in any way, shape, or form qualified to give you suggestions on life choices. But Nick Cage is, and he's made hundreds of life choices. Seriously, I cannot stress enough just how much you should not take our advice. But we're experts. No, seriously, we're not experts. Yes, but we will be reviewing his first acting gig as Nicholas Coppola, Best of Times, which features a young and very precious Crispin Glover. And his work in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And his work in My Nightmares. We're experts. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurdBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at BucketMurd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.